Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast. In this podcast, we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we do tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors too. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Alan Collins, and I'm joined by Dr. Michael Salter, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales. Hello, Mike. Hello, Alan. Thank you very much. And today, Mike, I thought we would discuss sexual abuse and religious bureaucracy or its relationship with religious bureaucracy. Because as I understand it, you have looked into this and you wrote a paper. And if I may, I will quote a paragraph from it, which says, and I quote, clerical authority and norms of masculine sexual entitlement had an important role to play in the pattern of offending evident in the diocese. However, what is noted is that these traditions and norms were bolstered rather than obstructed by religious bureaucracy. So I was intrigued by that because, as we know, there's been a series of very high profile cases. We've had the Royal Commission in Australia and we had the independent inquiry in London, which has been looking at sexual abuse in, in, in religious contexts. So what is behind this statement? It's a good question. A key area of study for me is organised sexual abuse. So I, I do a lot of work in the study of pedophile rings. In the Royal Commission here in Australia, so the largest inquiry that we've ever held into the sexual abuse of kids in institutional settings, what was quite interesting was that the inquiry did not find much in the way of evidence of organised, coordinated sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. So it found extensive sexual abuse in the Catholic Church without question. I'm not going to deny for a moment the scale of abuse in the Catholic Church. It was absolutely endemic. But it was a, it was a widespread cultural issue. What wasn't apparent was particularly well-organised and coordinated perpetrator networks. Where those perpetrator networks were identified in the Royal Commission quite clearly and strangely to me, was in the Anglican Church. So the Anglican Church is one of the dominant Protestant faiths here in Australia. And one of the things that characterises the Anglican Church and contrasts it to the Catholic Church is that the Anglican Church is quite bureaucratic. So the Catholic Church, its organisational structure is frankly, and with all due respect to your Catholic listeners, it's kind of a medieval mess. You know, yeah, it's, it's of, one it's of the reasons... in a way, isn't it? It's a sort of schizoid, split and complicated and splintered, whereas, it's, yeah, whereas the Anglican Church, it's got a structure. And that's why if you're a sexual abuse survivor and if you've been sexually abused in the Catholic Church, it's actually quite hard to sue the Catholic Church because it's not clear how the Catholic Church actually functions or exists as an organisational or a legal entity, which has been a, a real challenge for us here in Australia. But that's not true of the Anglican Church. So the Anglican Church has a very well articulated structure at the level of the diocese in terms of how each diocese is governed. There's integration between uh, lay people and clergy in the governing of each diocese. So they're very 
they're quite kind of middle class and regimented and very professional in terms of the way in which diocese, Anglican dioceses are structured. And what was interesting is that many of the, I suppose, characteristics of the managerial approach in Anglicanism has often been put forward as a solution to sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, that the Catholic Church needs to be more rational and more modern and more bureaucratic and more managerial, and there needs to be more oversight, and that this will reduce sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. But when, I, when we looked at the Anglican Church here in Australia, it has all of those features. It's very modern. It's very bureaucratic. But what we found in the Anglican Church, and in particular case studies, because the Royal Commission identified particular abuse case studies and then drilled into them very closely, was there was two case studies in the Anglican Church where we had quite extensive, organised, coordinated and very bureaucratic sexual abuse of children. And so the, the paper that you're referring to and that this quote comes from It's based on case study number 42, which looks at the Anglican diocese here in New South Wales, in the the state where I live, the, the Newcastle Anglican diocese, where a perpetrator network of pedophile clergy took over the diocese for two generations and effectively ran the diocese from the early 1960s through to probably about 10 years ago. And the way in which they were able to take over the diocese is that they effectively infiltrated the bureaucracy of the diocese, so the governance of the diocese, and they used that bureaucracy in order to sexually abuse children. And so this was quite an interesting case study for me as someone that studies pedophile rings, was to look at how it was that a group of abusive clergy could infiltrate this management structure and use that management structure to sexually abuse kids for over four decades. So the actual actual way that the diocese was managed actually became the vehicle that enabled these paedophiles to access their potential victims who became victims. Yes, and so there was a couple of interesting things about this case. Uh, The first was the theological seminary that is now closed. Now, bearing in mind that this theological seminary was based in a, a small country town, so it was, it was quite a small seminary, but this small seminary is responsible for a significant proportion of all sexually abusive clergy in the Anglican faith across Australia. So there was something very unusual about this particular small seminary in a country town that was consistently during this period, it's now shut, I should say, but consistently during this period, producing a very high number of sexually abusive clergy. Was this being sort of done consciously or subconsciously? Was it sort of birds of a feather attracting like-minded people or was it a conscious, deliberate decision on those who were running the show? so to speak. So what I would say is that the Royal Commission did not make any findings of fact about why it was in particular that this one small seminary was producing such a large number, such a disproportionate number of pedophile clergy. What we can say, I think, is that the culture of that seminary was certainly forming 
abusive sexualities. So when we talk about clergy formation, which is a term that's often used in faith communities as they recruit clergy and they look to form clergy, the formation of clergy in the context of this seminary was clearly promoting or producing sexual offenders. However, in this case study, so case study number 42 of the Anglican Newcastle Diocese, there was clear evidence of sexually abusive clergy abusing teenage boys and then encouraging those teenage boys to become clergy. At that which point, those, yes. So, so the way in which those teenage boys are brought into the clergy is via sexual abuse. They then enter into this theological seminary that we know had a culture that was promoting sexual abuse and they then go on to abuse. And there's quite an extraordinary moment in the Royal Commission because the then Bishop of Newcastle, so the most senior Anglican clergy in this diocese, who emerges as a a great defender of the rights of sexually abused people, he attempted to really clean out the rot in the diocese. He himself had been sexually abused by clergy in the Anglican Newcastle Diocese when he was a teenager. Right. Well, that's, um, you know, well, you know, extremely thought-provoking. Almost takes your breath away, doesn't it, hearing that? So has he been able to give any kind of analysis as to why all of this was allowed to occur? Because, you know, I've got several questions sort of burning away here, which is, the young men who were abused and were then encouraged to become priests themselves, what what was their insight into their experiences? And again, you know, was the, the, the bishop able to give any insight into that? He's, he's since stepped down. This was at the, his, his name was Bishop Thompson. I mean, he testified at the Royal Commission and his view was precisely that boy's and young men were being sexually abused and were then being recruited into a culture of sexual abuse. So he testified to this. This pattern has long been commented on more broadly in both the context of Catholic and other Christian seminaries, that some seminaries had a culture of older priests sexually abusing or engaging in sexual activity with younger priests. And that this was quite widespread in certain seminaries, not only obviously in this particular case, but through certain seminaries throughout the world. And that this has been kind of a hidden secret within the Catholic Church and other other Christian faiths. But that it's also contributed to a culture of secrecy. It's contributed to a culture of the normalization of sexual abuse and the violation of, of sexual boundaries. What we see occur in the Anglican case study is that in the, in the 60s, a particular group of pedophile priests who were, um, in fact, in relationships with one another, and this is also one of their unusual features of this case, is that this is sort of a rural regional diocese that was um, very tolerant, in fact, of these clergy who were in long-term same-sex relationships with one another in an increasingly public kind of way. The Anglican faith in Australia is, is, is viewed as quite a conservative faith and has been a long-term opponent to, for example, marriage equality and LGBT rights. 
in this particular diocese, these clergy were living more or less openly in same-sex relationships with, with one another. They were very influential in the diocese. They were very charismatic. They, uh, as I, I mentioned, used this theological college. But there was also a boys' town. So there was also essentially a residential facility for troubled boys. And they used this boys' home to access children for abuse over quite a long period, up to and including, in one case, seeking to adopt teenage boys out of that boys' home for the purpose of sexually abusing those boys. And we also have evidence of what looks like child trafficking, where one, one survivor of that particular institution, you know, quite a horrific institution, but one survivor talked about uh, men being brought to the boy's home and essentially for the purpose of sexually abusing him. Um, and that was a commercial transaction. True. So, you know, basically, it sounds as though they were creating their own structured world. Well, but that was what was just so what was so incredible and so sort of jaw dropping um, about this case was the way in which they used the infrastructure of the diocese. They also used the the church camp, so the the church children's camp, which there was particular property that was set aside as a holiday camp for children. That was a very routine site of abuse where children were being taken for the purpose of abuse. There was repeated complaints about this behaviour by parents in the diocese. There's very clear evidence that those complaints were ignored at the highest level of the diocese throughout the 1970s and the 1980s. In the 1990s, the diocese does establish a complaints line, so a dedicated telephone line that was staffed to take reports of sexual abuse within the diocese What then emerged was that some of the clergy who were dedicated to that hotline were also abusers. So the child abuse hotline that was set up to take complaints of clergy abuse was being staffed by sexually abusive clergy. I mean, it's absolutely jaw-dropping. And there were lay people who were seconded in to committees in the 90s who were, design, uh, who were dedicated to dealing with complaints of sexual abuse during the 90s. These lay people testified at the Royal Commission and their view was that this committee was nothing more than a token gesture. And one, one committee member, you know, her testimony stands out because she effectively just lost her faith. She felt that she'd been used by, by the diocese as a kind of a fig leaf and she left the committee and then ultimately left the church. Well, you know, hardly surprising, is it? So does the Anglican Church now recognise that its structure and the way that it's managed its affairs presents, presented its own risk? And having recognised it, if it does, what has it done to try and minimise the risk associated with child abusers using bureaucracy in order to, as a vehicle to gain access to children. So when when Bishop Thompson came into his, his role, it was about 10 years ago now, from memory, he instituted a wide ranging clean out and review of sexual abuse within the diocese. 
and he he brought in individuals from outside the diocese and, and appointed them at quite senior levels to do this. One of the issues that he encountered was widespread resistance from within the diocese by the supporters of known clergy offenders. That resistance included significant legal resistance. So there were lawyers within the diocese who were making legal complaints against the bishop using the mechanisms, the complaint mechanisms within the church, but also using the complaint mechanisms within the Royal Commission to make complaints about the bishop. The resistance within the diocese included threats. It included the slashing of tires. It included graffiti. Some of the independent investigators within the diocese had to move and effectively go into protective custody to protect themselves and their children. So attempts to root out the issues at the heart of the diocese, in fact, met very strong resistance within the diocese itself. And one of the challenges for the Anglican Church is that the dioceses are quite autonomous. They are structured to as essentially self-governing entities. And I think there are real issues for the Anglican Church at a national level in terms of instituting uniform child protection measures across all dioceses, given that one of the things that the Anglican Church has really prided itself on is this local autonomy and local self-governance. So I think there's real issues there. Again, thank you very much, um, Michael. Very thought-provoking, absolutely interesting. There's lots of questions that I could ask, but I think we'll have to leave that for another time. So thank you very much, and I hope our podcast listeners found our podcast informative as well as interesting, as well as extremely thought-provoking. So thank you very much. So I was just going to say, if listeners are interested in, in more, more information on this case, if they go to my academia.edu profile, they can download a free version um, of my paper about the Anglican Newcastle Diocese case study, because it is really fascinating. There's a lot of details there to drill into. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify and Google Play. If you would like to speak to Alan or I about something you have heard this week, or even if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please do get in touch at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk 